0: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather this Christmas season. And God, we, um, we gather because what this time represents. It's not just a time for us as a individual families to get together and celebrate and give gifts and all that, obviously God is fantastic, but the main reason we gather is we celebrate the occasion where you became one of us, where the invisible, immortal God put on the visible, put on flesh and dwelt among us. Christianity is unique in that respect. There is no other belief system on the planet whose God became a man. And God, I pray today that you would help us to understand the significance of that moment. Maybe, obviously, people here that have never heard the significance of that, we pray today that you would open up their eyes to see how that is an example of what you can do, how you can do abundantly more than we ask or think or even can imagine. And so we ask you to do that now. As always, open hearts and minds and eyes to see and help me to communicate this word in a way that honors you and is helpful to us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I read a story this week about two young boys that were... At their grandparents' house the week before Christmas. And it came time at night for them to get ready for bed, and and they would customarily pray at night. And so they sat down, two young boys, and started praying. And one of the boys started praying really loud. He said, I pray for a new bike. I mean, almost screaming it. I pray for a new PlayStation. And the other brother looked over at him and said, God is not deaf. Why are you talking so loud? He said, I know God's not deaf, but grandma is. <laughs> and that, if you are a grandchild or have a grandmother, I guess all of us are to a degree, right? You understand that Christmas, we pray for things, right? Throughout the year, but we understand. When it comes to Christmas time, we're praying to God, but he works specifically through people in our families to bring us gifts. And I say that story because I think it illustrates a little bit about prayer, and there's nothing wrong to pray that we get specific things or that God brings specific things, and maybe you're praying that God will bring you a specific thing this Christmas. But what I want to talk about in praying, even though it's not wrong to pray for those things, But I wanna talk about how in prayer, ultimately, prayer is about acknowledging the one who can give things, the one who is the giver, because in a way, it glorifies him. It glorifies him for us to ask him for things because it recognizes two things. One, we are needy, and two, he is able. And it's that part about God being able and how we pray to glorify him that I want to talk about today. If you've been here over the last several months as a part of our church, we've been preaching through the letter to the Ephesians. And today we're going to wrap up chapter three of Ephesians, and we're going to look at the last two verses, verse 20 and 21. But if you haven't been here, don't worry, it'll still hopefully make sense to you. But if you would like, you can go back and listen to those messages as we've just taught through the first three chapters. But these last two chapters of Ephesians chapter three are the last two verses of Paul's prayer. Paul had been praying for this church that he had started and had ministered to and now he had left and now he wrote this letter back to them and he prays at the end of this chapter for some specific things. And we talked last week, again, if you were here for now, you can go watch that, about the specific things that Paul was praying for them. But this week, what I want us to see is how he concludes it. And then my goal is to hopefully tie in how he prays as a way to understand what Christmas is all about. So let's look, Ephesians chapter three, verse 20 and 21. Paul says, now to him, you're gonna see that phrase repeated. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Verse 21, here's the phrase again. Now to him, and he adds to it, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. So this is how Paul ends his prayer. He ends his prayer pointing back to the one who is able. The one who is able, and I love how he says this And different translations, use different phrases, obviously, but in this one, he says, he's able to do more than we can even ask or even think. I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes I don't even know the right way to ask it. I don't even know the right way to say it. And the good news is, is even if you struggle to ask, he's able to do more than you can ask. So the problem is not so much that we haven't asked. Maybe the, the, the struggle a lot of times is just believing that he's able to do even more than we can ask. So it's not about the asking, it's about the faith to believe that he could do more. And then he highlights the second phrase when he says, now to him be glory. So to him who is able and him be glory. And Paul concludes his prayer this way because I think it reminds us of who it is that we are praying to who it is that we are praying to. And he highlights, he wants to glorify him. He wants to glorify him who is able. Now this word glory is not just a Bible word, although it is used a lot in the Bible, but we talk about glory as people who have accomplished great feats, right? They've won championships or they've won different competitions or they've done amazing things. And the the idea of glory, a lot of times to us, might refer to someone who's famous or who's done something great. But biblically speaking, the idea of glory has to do more with, and if you've been around church, I've told you this, weightiness. And the idea of glory, it means weight, which just means I'm more glorious than your average man, right? Oh, if we just thought about weight that way in our society, oh, you're skinny, you're not as glorious. Oh, you're weightier, you are glorious right? That's not how we think. But the idea of glorious in the Bible with weightiness means there's no one weightier. There's no one that's a bigger deal than God. He has more weight behind. We might use the word clout, right? He's got more power. And the best way I can think about it is when an egg comes into contact with a rock, who's going to win that competition? The rock, because the the rock is weightier. And you could apply that to the person, the rock as well, right? He's weightier. And that's the concept of God. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to ascribe the glory that he deserves because he's able. He's weightier. And this part of this text, and if you have a Bible at the top, it may have a little kind of subsection that says this word, doxology, And there's several different books in the Bible that will have this phrase because Paul would end a lot of his letters this way. He does the same thing in Romans chapter 16. And this word doxology, I have it here on the screen for you. I want you to see this because I want you to understand. The word doxology is a short formula expressing praise to God. And it's made up of two Greek words. The first one, doxa, which means glory. That's the weightiness part. And then the word logos, which just means speaking. So a doxology is when you are speaking words about the gloriness of God, the weightiness of God. And that's what Paul's doing here. Now, it leads me to ask a question. What's up with all this glory talk? Why is it important to glorify God? Not just in our prayers, not just in the words that we say, in the in the logo, in the, the things that we speak, but in our lives. Why is it important to glorify God or to show or ascribe to God? Does God need that? Does God need us to tell us how awesome He is? Is that why the Bible tells us to glorify God? No. But I want to show you coming out of the story of Christmas that illustrates these two things in this verse one how he is able to do more than we can even ask or think or imagine, but two, about why glorifying God or glory coming from you to God is important. Now let's go to Luke chapter two. In Luke chapter two, if you have a Bible, you can turn there, if you don't, don't worry, about it. I've got it here on the screen. In Luke chapter two, we get Luke's version of events that he got from Mary, and the the reason why we know we got it from Mary is because it'll say things like, Mary pondered these things in her heart. Well, how did Luke know that? Well, Mary had to tell her that. Because women, I don't know if you know this, but we don't know what's in your heart unless you tell us. (laughs) Luke wasn't a mind reader to Mary, right? That right there is called a freebie, all right? That's That's a free marriage counseling session here at a Christmas gathering. You ain't gonna get that at Target. That's why it's better here, all right? So... Yeah, amen. So obviously Mary had to tell Luke that. So Mary recounts to Luke what happened the night that Jesus was born. And that's what we're going to look at. Luke chapter two, starting in verse four, it says this. And Joseph, who was the dad, also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, we stop and just real quick context. I didn't have time to put all these verses in here. But at this point in time in human history, Rome was ruling their world. Rome was in charge. And Caesar had called for a census. And what that meant was... When he called for that, they wanted to know everybody that was living in the entire Roman empire. So you had to go back to where you were born to be registered so that people knew. So here's Joseph and Mary. They're living in, and if you look at Israel on the map, Galilee's to the north. And now they're having to travel south, down south of Jerusalem to Bethlehem to be registered. So they're on this journey. And here's what's crazy. We know that Mary is pregnant And the reason why we know is because while she's in Bethlehem, she gives birth. So look at this in verse six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Just imagine that one, ladies. Traveling, no car, no AC, no Instagram to, you know, keep your mind at ease as you're going. No doctor, no epidural. Traveling probably on foot, riding maybe a donkey. I mean, literally, hundreds of miles. And then while she's there, she gives birth in a place that she's not familiar with. So the time came for her to give birth, verse seven, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, there's a lot of debate about what the inn was, but it wasn't like a holiday inn, all right, in that sense. It could have been somebody's guest house. There's a lot of different theories about that. I don't wanna you know, get into that so much, but we know they couldn't stay there, so then they had to go, and all it tells us is they lay him in a manger. Well, just by the powers of deduction, you understand a manger is basically a food trough for animals. So they are in a barn or a stall. What we think of barn or stall, we think of this like wooden structure. And in fact, probably a lot of you in your your houses, you have this manger, like this wooden structure, and there's this manger that is wooden. I hate to tell you, but that's not biblical, all right, because they wouldn't have had wooden structures back then. And the reason why that kind of picks up later is people who drew paintings of this were European. Well, in Europe, the primary thing, uh, material for building things was wood. But in the Middle East, in Israel, it was stone. So more than likely, this was either a cave cut out of stone or the bottom part of a tower made of stone where there was a place just in Bethlehem, just to the outside, where sheep herders would be, shepherds and sheep. You're gonna see them in just a minute. But what we know is that Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary have to go to this place because there's no other place for them to stay. And after Jesus is born, he was put in a manger. So this is where, you know, Jesus's parents couldn't say, were you born in a barn? He was like, well, actually I was, yeah. But this, I have a picture of what a manger looks like. And I I don't want you to see it. Because a manger, again, is not this wooden thing. It would have been cut out of stone. So I want you to see this picture of a manger that we have here on the screen. This is what it would have looked like. Made out of stone. And you'll see how the middle part is cut out, kind of hewed out and then that metal band around there, whether that was there or not at the time, but the idea of that is you would attach you know, a rope through that and the animal would stand there and eat. So think of a manger as a food trough. That's what it is. But you can tell from that picture that's kind of cut out, it's not a bad place to put a baby inside because it's kind of cradling the baby. Now here's what's significant. The significance of the reason why Luke tells us, and other places as well, that Jesus was placed in a manger, to us, it's a part of the story. But I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, most people don't put their babies in food troughs. They put them in cribs. So that's significant to the story. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I pointed this out many times. Every time an angel shows up in the Bible, people are afraid. So an angel is probably not that kind of cute, little cuddly, Cupid-looking thing that you may have at your house. They are creatures that when they show up, these spiritual beings... People are afraid. Every time an angel shows up, no one's like, oh, how cute. They fall down and they're afraid. And then the angels tell the shepherds this. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Literally, I bring you the gospel of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is called, who is Christ the Lord. Now look at verse 12 and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now we've become so accustomed to that story, especially if you spend any time around church, but not even in church, just in popular culture. But I want you to think about this. In order for that to be a sign, it had to be something that wasn't ordinary. I mean, imagine the angel saying this. Here's a sign. You'll find a baby in a crib. Well, how do I know which baby it is? How do I know that this baby is the Lord? Just because mama tells me this baby is the Lord don't mean that this baby is the Lord, right? How do I know? And this is the sign, the Bible says, you will see a baby in a manger. Well, that should tell us something. And I already referenced this. Most people, most normal people, most good parents, and I'm not trying to insinuate that Joseph and Mary are bad parents. They had to make do with what they had. But if you have a choice to make, you're not going to put a baby in a place where animals eat. I I remember growing up, we had horses. We lived in the city, but we had land outside that we leased. And we had a lot of horses, and we built a barn, and eventually we moved out into the country. And we would go out there and feed these horses And we built this barn and we had food troughs, but again, here we use wood. And so we built all these food troughs and when we would go feed our horses, by the time we would get the bucket, trying to get it into there, literally most times what I'd have to do is put the food in there first because the horses would just attack you. I mean, they're hungry, right? And so this horse comes up and and ours, again, made out of wood. These animals, these horses, I mean, their mouths, I mean, they're so strong. They would come in and just like gnaw at it, right? And lick it. And I mean, it would be gross, And you think about that. You know what I never saw when I went to a barn? I never saw a baby in a horse trough. And what would I have done if I did, right? I would have called some authorities. I would have, uh, what? A baby in a horse trough? I mean, just imagine this. And here's what's crazy. The Bible, again, I don't have time to get into all these verses. The Bible tells us the shepherds go fast And they know right where to go. It's not like they go through the entire town of Bethlehem looking for this. They go to, in their minds, what would be a natural place where a manger would be, which would have been very close to where these shepherd fields were, which is probably where the shepherds took the sheep to give birth. And so they went to this place where the sheep would give birth and then they see a baby in a manger. And here's what I want to submit to you. This baby in a manger is an example of Ephesians 3.20 of him who is able to do more than we could even ask or think. Because it is an odd thing that there's a baby in a manger. And that sign means something. Because if you know anything about signs, they point to a greater reality. Signs are pointers, right? Signs give direction. Signs point to something greater, a truth of something greater. And in the same exact way, this baby who is not normally in a manger is a sign and points to something greater, which also leads to this angel and a whole bunch of other angels instantly singing and glorifying God. Look at the next two verses, verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And here's what I want you to see. This sign of this baby in a manger, the moment that the angel said that, literally it says, and suddenly... It's like the moment that this one angel says, here's the sign, vault, here's your sign, right? A baby in a manger. All these other angels show up and start singing. All these other, in the Bible just uses the word multitude. And that's just a word for a lot. We would say it like this. There were millions of people. We don't really know if there are millions. We just mean there's so many I couldn't count. And so this multitude of other spiritual beings show up and then they start glorifying and praising God the moment this revelation about this sign occurs. And that's significant because this sign points to something greater. But I wanna point out one thing that we can learn from the angels before we get into the explanation of the sign. And here it is. If you're taking notes, you might wanna write this down. Here's what the angels teach us. When glory goes up to God, peace comes down to us. When glory goes up to God from us, so from us, glory goes to God, then peace comes down to us. And that is an explanation to the second part of Ephesians 3, verse 21, where he says, all glory to him. Remember, I asked you, what is the big deal about glory? Does God just want us to glorify him because he's needy and he needs to tell us to tell him how weighty he is? No. Glorifying God is essential because your peace depends upon it. Your peace, and what do we mean by peace? We mean freedom from worry. And I don't know about you, we could use some peace. Right? We are the most anxious generation ever in human history. And the connection I'm trying to see is not about whether it's good or bad or wrong or sinful to have anxiety. What I'm saying is our peace is connected to, or let me say it like this, the peace of God is connected to us glorifying God. That's the connection I'm trying to get you to see. So maybe in our life, the lack of peace coming down to us is a result of the lack of glory coming up from us. That's what I want us to see. And that's what this story teaches us. Because this is about who is able to do more than we could ask or think. Now, what's the key to that? The key is when you see what God did, When you understand the rest of this story, when you see the implication of this, my hope is you'll glorify God. And when you glorify God, you'll get peace. In fact, I wanna show you, again, I had to cut out some of the verses, but I wanna show you now what happens to the shepherds after they see this baby in a manger. Look at verse 20. It says, and the shepherds return again, I had to cut some of it out, so they go to see the baby in the manger, now they return, and the shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and what? Seen. They had seen the sign as it had been told to them. And I want you to picture this. Here's some shepherds out in the field watching some sheep. An angel shows up, tells them, here's a sign, a baby in a manger. Then all the angels start glorifying God and they're like, we gotta go check this out. And they go check it out. They find the baby in the manger. They tell Joseph and Mary everything that they heard. They see, and then they leave. And here's what's crazy. They leave singing Ace of bass. You don't know what I'm talking about. I'm gonna sing it for you. They leave singing. I saw the, and it opened up my, I saw the sign. Yeah. Listen, I'm ashamed too that I'm quoting Asa Bass in a Christmas message, okay? But I just got to be honest with you. That's what I thought of. I mean, that's the picture that I get here. These dudes at night, they go see a baby in a major and something happens, Something happens when they see a baby. And again, I just get this idea of them like skipping and singing. You know what I'm saying? You get that visual? They're like just skipping, just glorifying and praising God, right? Singing. We don't know what they said, but, but, but you know they were like, I saw the sign. Open up my eyes. I saw. What? And again, I'm sorry for the fact that Ace of Base is going to be on your mind now for all of Christmas holidays, but I hope... I hope it brings you back to this story so that you can see this connection about the fact that this baby is in a manger is a sign to something greater about what he's able to do, which then I hope will lead you to glorify him just like it did the shepherds. And here's the sign. You know, Jesus, when he grows up, he is speaking, and he performs signs and miracles. In fact, he even says why he performs signs and miracles. He performs signs and miracles, which are supernatural things, because he wants people to know that he has supernatural power. And the reason why he has supernatural power is because he's a supernatural being, When Jesus was born in a manger, that wasn't the first day that he existed. In fact, he existed from all eternity. This was the first day that he was a human, right? This was the point at which God became flesh and dwelt among us. But he performed signs and wonders because he wants us to know a greater reality exists behind what we can see. And that's what this sign points to. In fact, this is how Jesus talked all the time. In John chapter 6, again, Jesus has grown up now, he's in his 30s. He's having a conversation in Jerusalem, just north of Bethlehem. And he's talking to people and he's trying to get them to see the greater reality behind these signs. And I wanna read you a couple verses in John chapter six because it will help us understand the significance of the sign of the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Look at verse 28 of John chapter six. It says, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Which is a great question because if you remember back when the angel said, peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. And so the idea is, I wanna know what I must do to please God, right? And a lot of us think about that. What must I do to please God? In fact, you might even be at church this weekend because you want to please God. Because you think coming to church pleases God. And I'm not saying it doesn't please God, but what I'm saying is there's a greater reality beyond just coming to church that actually pleases God. And Jesus is gonna tell us what it is. Look at verse 29, this is how Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him Whom he has sent. You believe in him whom he has sent. Now that's significant. So they said to him, Here's the question. Then what sign do you do? What sign do you do? How do we know you're the one he has sent? Is basically what they're asking, that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Now I want you to see what they say next. Because what they say next and how Jesus responds tells you everything you need to know about understanding the sign of him being born in a manger. Look at verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you, now he adds to it, the true bread, from heaven. For the bread of God is he who come notice that the bread is he. It's not a thing, it's a person. Is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, "Sir, give us this bread always." Which I love that response. We want that bread. I want the bread that gives me eternal life. And what does Jesus say, verse 35? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That right there is the greater reality or the greater truth behind why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You may or may not know this, but you can fact check me later. But the name Bethlehem in Hebrew literally means house of bread. That's what it means, house of bread. And the reason why is because just south of Jerusalem, Bethlehem was a smaller town, but it was a place where they manufactured grain for bread for Jerusalem and primarily the temple. Because in the temple, you would have this thing called showbread. And bread obviously is a necessity for life. And this is what always makes me laugh. When there's like a hurricane, everybody goes and gets what? Bread and milk. But you don't use those on the daily. I, I, like, it still befuddles me why we go get those two things. Like, do you dip the bread in the milk? I don't get it, right? Whatever, I'm fine with it. But, but when, when all, you know, when, when like the thought of we can't eat anymore, this, again, this just makes me laugh people, are like, I know bread. Because we understand that it's part like a basic necessity of life. And here, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he's the bread. Now, here's the significance. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Now, I told you earlier about the manger, Now the manger is the place where animals ate. It's the place where animals ate. You saw that little hewed out part. They would put hay in there. They would put feed in there, right? So I want you to see this. Here's Jesus born in the house of bread and he who is the bread of life was placed in the place where you would come and eat. But now it's not for animals, it's for us. He is the bread of life. And it's like from his birth, God was pointing out to the fact, if you'll come and feast on Jesus, who is the bread of life, you'll have life. Amen. And that's pointed out at his birth. That's why the sign of Jesus being born in a manger is so huge to understand everything that God was doing. Now, let me take this a step further. When Jesus was about to be betrayed, on the night he was betrayed, the Bible tells us, he was sitting with his disciples and they were eating. And then he he does now what we call either communion or the Lord's Supper. And he takes bread. And he blesses it. And he breaks it. And he gives it. And he says, this is my, anybody know? Body. Body. Do this in remembrance of me. Take it and eat it. And then he gets a cup of wine and he says, this is my blood. And here's what's amazing to me. Later on in John chapter six, you can go read this later and see, Jesus says to them, if you'll come, and eat my flesh. What is he saying there? Like, for real, eat my flesh? No, no, no. What he's saying is, symbolically understand, I can't, why did Jesus, when he was born a human and placed in a manger, why was that significant? Because God had to put on a body. Why did he have to put on a body? Hebrews tells us because he had to be made like us, but he also had to be, had to put on a body because God can't die. But humans can. And on the cross, his body, just like a piece of bread, was broken. And his blood was poured out for you. That's why he was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, placed in a manger, because he is the bread. And Christmas is the invitation to all of us saying, Come and eat. Because if you come and eat, you will have life. But I want you to see this. He says he is the bread of life. The. It's a definite article. But this is not the only time that Jesus talked like this. In fact, Jesus talked like this all the time. I want to show you one more verse in John. John 14, verse 6. If you've been around church, this might be a very popular verse to you. Listen to this. Jesus said to them, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice the usage of words. The bread, the way, the truth, the life. Notice it is not what we would call an indefinite article like a, a bread, a way a truth, a life. And this is how a lot of people think about Jesus, especially in our pluralistic society today. People are like, oh, that's if you want to believe in Jesus, that's totally fine, no problem. That's good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. Jesus is a way. He may not be the way. And we use an indefinite article. I just want to read this to you because I find it fascinating. We use indefinite articles when we are preferring Uh, referring, sorry, to an unspecified thing or quantity. I love this one. We use them when we don't know which thing we're talking about. I mean, that's a way to get there. That's a truth. But we use a definite article, the, watch this, meaning it limits. It limits the meaning of a noun to one Particular thing. And this is what the story of Christmas is about. There's a very popular song that we sing at Christmas time called Away in a Manger. In fact, you may have heard it. In fact, let's sing it. Let's just do it, all right? Sing with me. You know it. Away in a Manger, no crib for. There you go. The little sound great. The stars in the sky, down where he lay. The little sleep on the hay. We can just end it right there. All right, that's good. You did great. You sound great. Now, the title of that song is Away in a Manger. And the word away is one word. A is a part of way, a way. We use that word to talk about away as in like, that's a ways out there. And that's what the song's trying to say. It's away in a manger, away from the city, away from others. That's where Jesus was born. But here's the cool thing to me. In fact, I saw a church say this this week and I thought it was amazing. And This is what I wanted to try to illustrate to you. Jesus was not a way in a manger. He was the way. In fact, that's my next point that I want you to see. It's not a way in a manger, but the way. It's not a way in the manger, not a, oh, that's a way to God. No, it's the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. And it's not meant to be exclusionary in the sense of saying that somehow Jesus is better or even though he is, but it's the idea of that's the only way because he's the only one. The reason that we can know that Jesus is the way is because he is the one who was born. He's the one who was born in Bethlehem, placed in a manger in the house of bread. He is the bread. And here's what I'm saying to you. Show me a better story or a better religion or a better way than God becoming one of us, living a sinless, perfect life, dying on the cross, rising again, and saying, if you believe in me, you'll never die. Tell me a better way. See, there's no other religion on the face of the planet whose founder, whose God put on flesh and dwelt among us. So when it says he's the way, what he's saying is he's the only one. He's the only one who has come, who loves you enough to, give, to put on flesh and then break his flesh for you to live. That's what God did. Now let's go back to Ephesians 3. 20 and 21, and see this verse again. And I hope it makes more sense to you now. Now to him, God, who's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Who would have thought up this story? I mean, here's what's amazing. God directed Caesar The most powerful man on the planet to enact a census so that he could get his son to Bethlehem to show you that he's the bread. God did that. God was behind all of that. God is the one. And here's what's also amazing the sheep that were raised in Bethlehem in these shepherd's fields, these were the very sheep that would also be the sacrificial lambs in the temple. This is where they were raised. So, the reason why he's the bread is because he is the sheep. He is the lamb of God that gives his life. Who could have thought of that? I mean, this story still amazes me. Which then leads us to verse 21 to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. You see why glorifying him? is important because he's done something that no one else has done, because he is someone that no one else is. But one last thing. I told you what the angels taught us is when glory comes up from us, peace comes down to us, but there's another thing I want you to see in Ephesians 3.20. It says to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, and here's what's crazy. According to the power that is work is at work within us. Within us. See, we just think about his power that's at work in the world. But here's what's amazing about the gospel. This is why the angels erupted in worship the moment that the sign was revealed, because they knew what was coming. It wasn't just Jesus coming into a manger. It was Jesus making a way to come into the, our hearts. It wasn't just Jesus coming into the world. It was Jesus coming into us. And this had to be done in order for that to accomplish. And here's what's amazing to me. Today, if you and I will simply understand who he is and glory goes up from us, then peace will come down to us and watch us and power will come down to us. Peace of God and the power of God. And those two are connected. And I want you to see that. See, if you're powerful, you have peace. Because you now know. No one is strong enough to take your peace because of your power. But it's not your power. It's his power. But it's working in us. Because he's able. He's able to do far more than you could ask, think, or imagine. And here's what I want you to know. He's not deaf. And if you just learn how to pray in a way that says, to him who's able, because Christ, to him be glory. That's the work of God if you believe. If you believe, you'll be saved. And to believe is to glorify him. And being saved means his peace comes to you, his power comes to you. Because now you know, the God of all creation put on flesh just like you so that he could overcome the things that are killing you, namely death. And now he's beat that. And that power That put Jesus in a manger, that put Jesus on a cross, that raised Jesus from the dead, that sits at the right hand of the Father right now can work in you if you'll believe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. The reason why we give you glory. Is because there's no greater story. We glorify you because you're able. You're able to do far more than we could ask or think. And the most amazing part of the Christmas story. It's not just all these little intricacies of you're born in Bethlehem, you are the bread, you are the lamb. There's so many other things. It's that you worked all of that throughout human history because you loved us. You wanted to give us peace, you wanted to give us power. That's what's so amazing about this. It's good news of great joy and the joy is to us if we'll believe. And so God, I pray right now for anybody here listening or watching that has never glorified you, who has never believed in you. I pray right now you'd open their eyes so that they can, God, and then they would believe. And when they believe, peace and power would come to them in the name of Jesus because they're trusting him to save him. No one looking around or talking here as we close. If you're here today, and maybe for the first time, maybe not the first time you've heard the gospel or the good news, but it's maybe the first time it's ever made sense because God is opening your eyes to see the truth that all he wants is for you to believe in the gift that he sent which is his son. He's saying, come and take and eat the bread of life. Believe and you'll be saved and you'll have peace and you'll have power because you have God. So if that's you and you want to trust Christ for the first time, we don't make you come down or anything like that, but right there where you are, you can pray. You don't even have to do this out loud because this is between you and God. But you can pray along with me, I'll lead you to glorify God, to believe in God, to trust Jesus as your Savior. So if you want to do that for the first time, it goes like this. Pray with me. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent Jesus to put on flesh. and he died in my place and he rose again. And I believe that he is God and I'm asking you to save me, forgive me. I want to partake in the bread of life so I have life and then glorify you. Would you give me peace and power no one looking around or talking again as we close, but if you're here today and you just prayed that with me, one thing I want you to do, very simply, just lift your hand up. Don't worry about people. We got team members walking around. They're gonna give you a gift. When they put a gift in your hand, you can just put your hand down. Just go ahead and lift it up. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, thank you. When they put that in your hand, you can put it down. We just wanna give you some next steps. It's a Bible. Then I want to just encourage you. Now you're a part of the family of God. We won't have gatherings next week, but right after that, in the first of the new year, we, we want to invite you back as you learn and grow into what it means to trust Jesus. But then those of us that have trusted Jesus, I want to encourage you with something. I pray that this Christmas reminds you I know you know the story. But I pray that you wouldn't just hear that Jesus is the bread of life. I pray that you would actually partake in it. You would actually trust him. You would actually see him as your source. You would rely on him. If you need peace, ask him for it. If you need power, ask him for it. And then you would live your life to glorify him. Because when glory goes up from you, peace and power comes down to you. And now, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.